Um, I'm so glad uh, that we're going to be coming back into the series in Isaiah. I hope you have been challenged by it. I know I have. Peter Brooks, great shirt. Thank you, Peter. I think it's the kind of shirt you would wear, Peter. Um, I am tempted, as we begin, to give an overview of the last two weeks, but I'm not going to. Just go and listen to the sermon on the church website. Chris, people are listening on Spotify as well? Everywhere, you can listen on Spotify, you can listen on the website, you can just read the text if that's easier for you. So keep up, keep up, there will be a test at the end of this series. <laughs> I'm kidding, no, there'll be an essay. Um, Alright, I cannot reintroduce the book of Isaiah every week, but it is so important moving forward that you've listened to those first two weeks. So let me encourage you to do that. Last week we, did, uh, we spoke on Isaiah 5 and 6. Uh, Isaiah 6 being Isaiah's call, and then Isaiah 5, the song of the vineyard, this kind of Old Testament parable, uh, which is an apt explanation of the state of affairs for God's people when the prophet Isaiah wrote. Uh, And that led on to the seven woes. I like a bit of judgment. I like a bit of judgment scripture. But here's the key to judgment scriptures in the Old Testament. Listen to it and read it, pointing the finger at yourself, not others, right? Like, like don't, don't let your mind wander to, oh yeah, there's my rich friend, they're greedy, or there's my immoral person I know, they're immoral. Like, Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. With the same measure you measure for others, it'll be measured for you. And so I find those passages powerfully profound. But make sure you're reading them, letting God speak to you. So we come to the next chapters and it addresses specifically where hope for God's people will come from in the midst of what looks like judgment and defeat. Remember, they're being threatened by the Assyrians from the north, the Babylonians, the Egyptians. Um, The people of God are under threat. Uh, I was going to give a cute analogy of the power of hope when all seems lost, but I couldn't think of any. And it would have been trite anyhow. So I'd much rather we get stuck into the Word of God. All right, today we move from Isaiah 5 to 6 to Isaiah 7 to 12. Which if you remember from our introduction, is God's Word. It's a section of God's Word for His people, not for other nations, for His people concerning judgment and future hope. It's a remarkable section of scripture where a mysterious child is promised in several sections. And let me encourage you to open up your Bible and to look along um, and even to take some notes. Now, to us who know Jesus, it is going to be pretty obvious who fulfills these promises. But to the people reading or hearing Isaiah, his contemporaries, it would have been quite baffling as to what God was going to do. Who is this child? Anyhow, clearly what we will see today is that this child to come will be a sign from God. He will be a ruler, he will be a king, and he will usher in a kingdom of peace and justice. So I'm going to read a few bigger chunks of scripture this morning, and then we will look at how that gets answered in the coming of Jesus. Now obviously we look at these passages and they are just kind of cool, right? Um, They're interesting, if for no other reason than 700 years later, they meet their fulfillment. But I also want us to uh, consider what the nature of the reign of the one we call Lord means for us. 
Okay, so these are more than just proof texts for Jesus for when we are doing apologetics. Like, it is cool to be able to say to people, look how Jesus fulfills prophecies from 700 years before his coming. That's a cool thing to be able to do in apologetics. Um, and I love the way Jesus intricately fulfills them. But there are some powerful implications for us as we come to understand the nature of our Messiah. Because that impacts, does it not, how we as his followers, his subjects, are to live our lives. Right? So for peacemaking, for justice, for righteousness, for being faithful covenant keepers. Sound good? All right. Let's get into it. Three main messianic passages paint the picture of hope in Isaiah 7 to 12. The first one we're going to find in Isaiah 7 is that this child will be a miraculous sign of God with us, Emmanuel. The second one is in Isaiah 9, is that this child will reign on the throne as the true king. And the third passage in Isaiah 11 is that this child will bring the long-promised shalom or peace of God. So a sign, a king, and peace as what we need to look for when God acts in history to bring hope. So before we start, one of the clearest signs, of course, is that this is important and true, is that the gospel writers will write about Jesus saying Isaiah is being fulfilled. So this was clearly their understanding of what was going on. Uh, you get this in a bunch of places, in all four Gospels. If you just read them, flick through them, you'll see Isaiah gets quoted um, quite regularly. Go read them for yourselves. Uh, but consider just, just one example, John 12, 41. It says, having just quoted a bit from Isaiah chapter 6, this is what John 12, 41 says. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. <laughs> Right? So as John reflected on the life of Jesus, he was like divinely inspired to say that this is what Isaiah was prophesying about. He saw, he saw Jesus coming. He saw Jesus coming and he wrote about him. And they do that under the inspiration of God. So we did the parable of the vineyard last week. Where God plants his people in a good land to produce good fruit, but he only finds bad fruit. We get the seven woes, pointing out where they've gone wrong. Things like greed, immorality, and so on. We then get the judgment of God on them, having failed to keep their side of the covenant. So Isaiah asks, how will restoration occur? How will hope make a comeback? How is God going to act? And Isaiah said, it's going to be the arrival of a child that signals the end of doom. God has not given up on forming a people who will bless all the families on earth. So, first big promise. Open your Bibles, Isaiah 7, 10 to 14. Let's pick up at verse 13. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David, it is not enough to try the patience of humans. Is it not enough? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. So the very first sign of hope that is to come and restoration says will come through a sign. A virgin will conceive, give birth to a son, they will call him Emmanuel. Now the idea of a sign is very important in the history of God's people. 
A sign always indicates that God is directly intervening in the events of human history to change the course of what is going on. Think the Exodus. Uh, Continually, God says to Moses, I will give you a sign. And it always refers to some miracle or divine act of rescue. So this first child, we are told, will be a sign. It will be a remarkable miracle that will involve a virgin conceiving. And this will be a divine intervention in human history unlike any other. And this child will be called Emmanuel. That, of course, being Hebrew for God with us. So somehow in this child, the presence of God will be made known. So into all the questions that that humans have always asked for history, where is there God? Is there a God? Uh, If there is a God, what is this God like? Uh, This child will be God with us, a sign, a revelation, an awesome and clear intervention in history that will assure us that hope has arrived. So if you've ever been to any Christmas service anywhere, ever, (laughs) you will know Matthew 1, 22 to 23. Uh, Matthew, the gospel writer, after telling the story of Joseph and Mary and the virgin conception of Jesus, the Immaculate Conception, says this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive, give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the idea of the conception between a virgin and the Holy Spirit is that in Jesus we're going to meet someone who therefore is fully God and fully human. And all through the Gospels, the significance of this is that in Jesus, we can fully know God. We can trust God, be reconciled to God, because this is God with us. Second big promise of Isaiah of a child is found in 9, chapter 9, verses 2 to 7. I think you'll know this one. (laughs) These are such great passages. So it says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. And every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire, for unto us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. It's so good. Now again, if you have been to any Christmas service anywhere, ever, you will know this passage. To a people walking in darkness, a light appears. There will be rejoicing and the oppressor's rod will be broken off an enslaved people and hostility will end. For to us a child is born, wonderful counsellor, mighty God. His names are Everlasting Father, 
Prince of Peace. And this promise that this ruler, this child, will reign on David's throne forever, establishing it with justice and righteousness. It is a remarkable promise. A child whose reign signals what? The end of gloom and the dawning of a kingdom of light. Now this would have particularly struck Isaiah's contemporaries because this king was to be everything that their kings had meant to be but were not. And all of the attributes and the characters of God throughout their history. Now do you remember a few weeks ago, it was actually before this Isaiah series, uh, I spoke about how Israel were not meant to have kings because Yahweh, their God, was meant to be their leader. And then the people of God whinge and complain and they say, we want to have a king just like all the other nations around us. God listens to their request and he's gracious to them and he allows it to happen. But then surprise, surprise, the kings of God's people end up like the kings of the other nations. They thirst for power, they are violent, they are greedy, they make alliances with other nations rather than trusting God. And so it's all a bit of a mess. And yet there's this theme through the Old Testament that a true king will one day emerge who will fulfill the expectations of having a ruler over them like Yahweh. You with me? It's getting good, right? (laughs) So the names of this child... Wonderful counsellor. It speaks to the fact that their true king should be full of wisdom. And maybe they would have reflected on King Solomon, who had been so wise, and yet later in life he threw it all away. Their God was to be their king was meant to be like mighty God, sometimes translated as divine warrior. Their king was meant to trust God for victory, and yet so often what the kings did was make alliances with other nations for protection. Everlasting Father speaks to the fact that their king was meant to have this compassionate concern for his people. And what they had with their kings was rulers who enriched themselves and oppressed the poor. And finally, their king was meant to be like a prince of peace. And we're going to get to that particularly in the next Isaiah passage. But the Davidic kings of Judah were constantly at war with the surrounding nations. So I don't know if you've ever wondered, why does Matthew's gospel start with the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah coming from the son of David? Right? It seems like a weird place to start the gospel. Well, you know now. (laughs) Because here comes the king to sit on the throne of David, whose kingdom will know no end. I don't know if you've ever wondered why there's so much talk about the kingdom of God in the gospels. You do now. Because this is about a child who will reign rightfully, justly, and with righteousness for all the nations. A king who would be wonderful counsellor, right? Their king was meant to be wise, and Jesus comes on the scene. Think about the Sermon on the Mount and the wisdom and the truth of Jesus' teaching. A king who will be called mighty God, fully divine, perfect unity, trusting the Father. A king who will be everlasting father. Think of Jesus' compassion and kindness. 
A king who would be prince of peace. Think about Jesus telling Peter, put away the sword. Forgiving his enemies. You with me? (laughs) This is good stuff. One of my favorite scenes in all of the Gospels is in Matthew 23, 37. Now listen. Listen to the voice that Jesus uses. He's not far off from being betrayed and crucified, and he has something very profound to say. Matthew 23, 37. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who were sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were not willing. Do you hear in Jesus the voice of God's people's true king? I do. You know, this is Jesus saying, Jerusalem, the place where I've come to reign, how long I've, I've longed to just gather you and protect you. And to, to, but you don't trust me. You, you killed the prophets. You stoned those And yet King Jesus, he longs to gather us and care for us like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. All right, we must move on to the last child, Isaiah 7 to 12. Time waits for no one, manly life. I probably could have done a whole sermon series in these three passages. But we didn't. We did it in one morning. So the third promise of a child is Isaiah 11, a shoot from Jesse. So come with me, Isaiah 11 from verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with his rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt. Faithfulness, the sash around his waist. And so the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a child, a little child, will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. And the infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters covers the sea. And in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people, and the nations will rally to him. And his resting place will be glorious. It's good stuff. All right. Final child, a shoot that will come from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was King David's father. And he will be full of the spirit of the Lord. (laughs) So what defines this child? 
who again is a promise of hope and restoration for the people of God. What, what do you see? What did you see in that passage in Isaiah chapter 11? The thing that strikes me, apart from all of the spirit language, right? The spirit language is just drenching and soaking this coming King and Messiah. And the spirit needs to drench and soak his church. Amen. But I love that picture, that language of shalom. You know, shalom, the Hebrew word for peace. Of God putting everything back together again. Again, he is clearly a ruler. Verse 4, with justice he will give decisions for the poor. But then there is this beautiful metaphor or this picture painted of animals that are natural enemies coming together in peace. And it says a little child will lead them. And what it is, like, I mean, obviously that's poetry. This is, this is a, a Hebrew, Hebrew imagery at its best. But this is a picture of shalom. And shalom is not just the state of things when there is an absence of war. It is also about a state of affairs where things are, are whole and at peace. So it's not just an uneasy truce. This is about things coming back and being reconciled together so that they're able to live together in harmony and to do no harm to each other. Now, interestingly, verse 10, it promises that the nations will rally to him. <laughs> this root of Jesse, this one in the line of the Davidic kings, will rule all people. Okay? It is a picture of the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that all nations will be blessed through this family of God. So again, the natural enemies, the, the, the nations of the world, the tribes that have been fighting will come to King Jesus. And as they come to King Jesus, they will put down their weapons and they will sit together at the same table and peace will occur in his kingdom. All of the tribes and the tongues of the world will come together under this king. You know, which is why if you then go to the book of Revelation, this is why in the book of Revelation you get this exact same imagery and picture of shalom and peace at the end of time. And we've talked about this, right? Jesus initiates the kingdom. He brings it into the world. He plants the flag. He initiates the kingdom of peace. And then he breathes his spirit on his church and he says, go be agents of shalom. Go bring this kingdom. Go preach it to all the nations until every nation puts down their weapons of war and can sit together once again as one true humanity created in the image of God. I mean, do you see how this is powerful? Written 2,700 years ago, and yet there has been no greater image of peace that we have known today. Now, I got a bit excited there. <laughs> Just wait till there's people in the room. I hope next week's passage on Isaiah is good. As we come to Jesus, there are obviously a few major things to note. Now, we've already spoken about Jesus' genealogy being from the line of Jesse and David. We think of Jesus at his baptism. What happens at his baptism? The Spirit of God descending on him and a voice from heaven saying, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Right? Again, that's fulfilling Isaiah 11. 
He stands on the side of the poor. He says the kingdom of God belongs to these. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. He loves his enemies. He forgives those who crucify him. And of course, he extends this invitation to discipleship to everyone, saying to his closest followers, now go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. I mean, I could go on and on and on and on about how Jesus fulfills the child promised. In Isaiah 7 to 12. So what do we do with all of this? (laughs) I apologize for rushing through so much of the material. That's why we've got to take notes, church. Because it'll go in and it'll go out. I'm not here to entertain you. Okay? I'm here to teach you the word of God. So that it gets in you so deeply. So that when you act, you act intrinsically out of the narrative of the scriptures. Pay attention, church. (laughs) All right, what do we do with all of this? Right, well, hopefully it's faith building for you. I mean, it's quite remarkable how Jesus fulfills these prophecies of Isaiah. It says in John 15, as I quoted, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and he spoke about him. This is a remarkable book particularly looking back through the lens of time and seeing how it is fulfilled in Jesus. But as we close, I wonder if we might just come back to that idea of covenantal faithfulness that we've talked about the last few weeks. And again, if you think of the song of the vineyard, we are a planting of God designed to produce good fruit. And what we see in today's passage is that in Jesus we find the fulfillment of what the true vineyard should look like, a shoot of Jesse that will bear good fruit. And it's our role as the children of God, grafted in because of Jesus, to reflect and establish our king's kingdom by continuing his good fruit. Right? That's what we saw in John 15. If you're not producing fruit, you will be cut off and thrown and burnt because you're good for nothing. But if you stay grafted into King Jesus, you'll begin to produce the fruit of the kingdom. And maybe I'll leave you with this, because in light of the king who establishes peace, in Matthew 5, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. So what does it look like to be a planting of the Lord, to be a child of God, to be a subject or a servant of the king? It means to be a peacemaker. And then maybe my question is, how are you, how are we working towards shalom? Because that's that's the good fruit that God wants us to produce. The Son of God who brings a kingdom of peace calls his children to be peacemakers in a world constantly at war with each other. Now a couple of times this week I've been tempted to go to war with some people. (laughs) You know, I've got some pretty vitriolic emails and We've had some issues with some neighbours around the church. And, and I don't think that peacemaking doesn't mean telling the truth, right? It doesn't mean just being a doormat. But that's not what I was tempted to do. My instinct is to rip people apart with my dazzling intellect and sensational wit. <laughs> I don't have anything of those things. <laughs> no, no, but what do we do? We follow a different king. 
then we follow a different king. And that affects how we talk to one another, how we email each other, how we interact with neighbours, how we respond to criticism. I'm not saying I always get it right. In fact, I probably get it wrong a fair bit of the time. But I tell you what, I'm, I'm committed to trying to be a child of the Son of God. And he is a remarkable sign of divine intervention who reigns as a king and ushers in a kingdom of peace. So there you go. You know what to do, church. Let's worship and let's live like King Jesus. Amen.